morning, gents. So good to see you here. This is a little bit different than a Sunday morning because Sunday morning your family might be part of the way you get to church because you sort of feel like I need to need to be there for them and all of that. But when you come to a Saturday morning breakfast, I know you're here because you want to be here and you want to hear the word. I want to take a moment to get into this topic and one of my favorite characters in history is a guy by the name of Booker T. Washington. Um, Booker T. Washington was a uh, renowned black educator in the late 1800s and he really pioneered um, helping young black men and women get a solid education. Um, But he, he wasn't well known for a long time. He is now. But shortly after he took over as president of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, um, he was walking through an exclusive section of town. And he was just kind of dressed in his regular clothes, and he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. This wealthy white woman didn't know Mr. Washington, didn't know who he was, not by sight, at least. And she said, would you like to earn some extra money? And he was intrigued and said, sure, what do you want me to do? And she said, well, you see, I need all this wood chopped. And could you chop all this wood for me and bring him into my house? And so he didn't have anything pressing at the moment. He was just on a walk. (laughs) So he rolled up his sleeves and said, sure. And spent a couple of hours chopping wood, moving it in there. And when he was finished, he, he carried all the logs into the house, stacked them, and said, is there anything else I can do for you? And she paid him a little bit of money, and he said thank you, and, and went on. Well, a, a little girl in the neighborhood who knew who Dr. Washington was uh, went and knocked on the door and, and told the lady, do you know who just chopped wood for you? And she said, that's uh, Dr. Booker T. Washington, the president of the Tuskegee Institute. And she knew who he was. She just never met him. And she was horrified. And so the next day, she went to Dr. Washington's office and uh, got, got in through his secretary and apologized profusely. And, and he told her, it's, it's perfectly all right. I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. And that blew her away. And she said, well, here's what friends do. And she gathered groups of all the wealthiest people in the area and she strong-armed them into giving thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to the Tuskegee Institute. That That's humility. He, he didn't demand an apology. He didn't say, do you know who I am? He just said, it's, it's good to do manual labor for a friend. This past year... Our introductory year of the First Watch Men's Breakfast, the theme has been discipleship. And that's a good place to start. That's been where we've been. And This morning, I'm going to talk to you about what I think is the top, the greatest goal of discipleship. The greatest goal of discipleship is humility. And I'd like to try to prove that to you. I want to give you, first of all, a simple definition of humility. Very short. Humility is having a proper estimation of yourself. It's having a proper estimation of yourself. And we'll, I think, fill that gap in here as we go. But I can't just drop the statement, humility is the greatest goal of discipleship without proving that to you. So I want to give you six reasons up front why humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. The first reason is humility is to be clothed with heavenly garments. 
Humility is to be clothed with heavenly garments. Humility makes you appear and act and think in a godly fashion, to act like you ought to according to heavenly standards. It's acknowledging your position as the created one and God's position as the creator. Or if I could put it this way, if you were at any given moment acting in a 100% humble manner, you would be fit to be walking the streets of heaven. You are clothed with heavenly garments. So the second reason humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. Humility is man's truest nobility. It's our truest nobility and men, and I, and I don't mean man as in mankind, I'm, I'm talking about man as in men. That we have a desire, we have a natural yearning for nobility, for class, for, uh, for respect. And that's not an evil thing, but it is, a, it is something we generally try to get in sinful fashion. You want honor? You want respect? You want nobility as a man? Those are good things, but the only real pathway is humility. To be the servant of all, to, to not give off the impression of your own importance. How in, in all the classic uh, situations in life in which a young man is leading older men, there's only one way that he ever gains their respect, and that's through humility. He never gains their respect by coming in and starting to shout orders and say, I, I have more education than you, and so you got to listen to me. They're going to say, well, make me. They, they respect him once he's humble. And once he's willing to be taught, even by those who are technically lower than him in rank. There's a fourth reason, or third reason rather, that humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. Humility is the sign of genuine salvation. It is the sign of genuine salvation because really every other sign of genuine salvation is, comes under that, that category. Now what do I mean by this? Well, the root of all sin is pride. And when you're repenting of sin, when you're forsaking sin, when you're hating your sin, the very definition of that is hating pride in all of its forms and instead taking on humility. So when when somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, and they, they come across as just prideful and arrogant in every area of their lives, you have every right to question their salvation. Because humility is the hallmark of being a believer in Christ. I'm going to talk more about that at the end of our time together. So the fourth reason humility is the greatest goal of discipleship. And if you don't get anything else today, get this one. Humility is the root of all obedience to the word of God. Humility is the root of all obedience to the word of God. I would challenge any of you to find one command in scripture in the law of Christ contained in the New Testament that's not rooted in humility. I'll give you a couple of examples. In the second half of Ephesians, which is the response to the doctrine of salvation in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Ephesians 4, 1 begins, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Verse 2, with all what? Humility. That's the headliner. That's at the top of the list for all of Ephesians 4, all of Ephesians 5, all of Ephesians 6. Verse 2, bearing with one another in love. That's rooted in humility. Verse 12, do the work of service to build up the body of Christ. That's rooted in humility because that says that the work of the gospel is more important than pursuing all your earthly dreams and all your goals. Verse 29, 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That's rooted in humility because only pride lets you say whatever comes to your brain. Only pride lets you think that you have the right to say anything that's gossipy, that's, that's slandering others. Verse 32, we're to graciously forgive one another. This is rooted in humility. and We even get the reason because God in Christ has also graciously forgiven you. Every obedient act to the word of God is rooted in humility. What does that mean? Obviously, the opposite is true also. Every disobedient act is rooted in what? In pride. Every one of them. Here's a fifth reason that humility is really the the chief goal of discipleship. Humility is the answer to every habitual sin you struggle with. Humility is the answer to every sin you struggle with. If you will successfully answer what prideful belief, what prideful lie have I told myself, what, what area of pride in my life do I have that keeps me returning to the sin over and over and over again? And, and I'll, I'll tell you up front probably what it is. It's something along the lines of, well, I deserve this, or I've earned this, or I need this. It's a lie, and it's based in pride. And what's the first word of those reasons? It's always I, right? But if you ponder, and you pray through, and you meditate, and you look in the mirror, and you say the words out loud, the reason I think that pornography is okay is because I deserve it. And you say it out loud, and it's like chewing on aluminum foil. It's like putting sand in your mouth. It's like taking the worst medicine in the world. And you say that over and over again enough times, it begins to feel ridiculous. And the more that pride repulses you, the more you're able to resist that sin. Why? Because you're finally seeing your sin the way God does. God is not Santa Claus who winks at sin. He is repulsed by it. He's disgusted by it. And the more you can be repulsed and disgusted by it, by saying out loud those prideful statements that go through your mind, here's my sin struggle, here's the root of it, it's something in pride, find the actual, uh, the actual specific prideful thought that causes that sin, and it will disgust you over and over again. One more reason that humility is the greatest goal of discipleship, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time on this morning. Humility is a hallmark of Christ-likeness. It's a hallmark of Christ-likeness. It is the pathway to be like Christ. If you're pursuing Christ-likeness, then you're pursuing humility. If you're pursuing humility, you're pursuing Christ-likeness. And so for today... I want to get our minds thinking down that particular pathway. And so we want to go to the ultimate example of humility. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. And of course, there's only one passage to start with. And that's Philippians chapter 2. So if you turn there, we'll start there and then go to some other passages. This is one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is absolutely key in our understanding of the nature of exactly what took place for Jesus to step out of eternity, to step out of the throne room of heaven into time and space as a man. Philippians 2 is our greatest explanation of the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ. 
He explains in detail his humiliation all the way up back to his exaltation. His, his trip downward to earth all the way to human death and his trip upward to the enthronement as the human king who is God, a king who before which all creation will bow one day. And so from verse 5 on, you have this glorious, glorious description of the self-emptying of Christ and his eventual exaltation. And I would love to spend time on the theology of that. We did that recently at the Steadfast Bible Conference. But I want to be faithful to the context. What this actually is, is a, is a giant, glorious, lofty, heavenly, eternal illustration of a truth that's about you and about me. And that is that the main purpose of this passage is to give us a model for humility, and that is Christ. If you model yourself after him, then you are being Christ-like. Both the sections before and after these verses deal with living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, and it's saturated in the idea of humility. William Temple, in his book, Christ in the Church, wrote this, Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. Listen to this. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other at all. That's humility. Hudson Taylor, very humble man, the founder of the China Inland Mission, he was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne, Australia back in the day and and the moderator of the service gave what was traditionally an eloquent and long introduction to this famous missionary. He told the huge congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China. And he said, I would like to now present our illustrious guest. And Hudson Taylor didn't move. He just kind of stood there for a minute and then he ambled up. He was older by this time. He ambled up to the platform and he said, if I could give a correction, dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious God. And he had his perspective correct. So our passage this morning presents Jesus Christ as our ultimate example of humility. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave by being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There's one main point to this passage. Jesus humbled himself first and would be exalted later and that's the main application I'd like to take that you're to humble yourselves now and let God exalt you later this is exactly in fact what Peter said in 1 Peter 5 6 therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time every one of us struggle with the problem of humility the problem of not having enough of it the problem of pride When something doesn't go the way I wanted to and my first reaction is to get angry, that's pride. When someone disappoints me and I look down on that person in my heart, that's pride. When I don't have all the things I think I deserve, that's pride. 
when the Lord takes something away from me and I spend even one second being angry with God, that's pride. On the other hand, humility before God says that I'm purchased by Him. Like verse 7 here says, I'm a slave of my master. Humility says, God may do with me as He pleases and it's not my place to even have an opinion on the matter. Humility says, I I won't base my happiness on earthly expectations. And and in fact, if you just expect that all your expectations uh, get shattered, that's one expectation that will come true. And you're okay with it. Humility says, I will transcend life circumstances by keeping focused on Christ at all times. I won't go through life filled with gloom and a cloud over me all the time, which is a, a form of not trusting the Lord. Humility says, I will not look down on other believers. I was snatched from the flames of hell. Why would I do that? How can I possibly look down on others? Humility says, I will abhor my own sin. I'll constantly seek to be sanctified and to be more Christ-like. I will say my sins out loud. I will speak them to God and I will face them like a man. And I will chew on that aluminum foil. I will put that sand in my mouth. I will swallow that horrible medicine so that I don't have to do it as often. Humility says, I will desperately search the scriptures for how I might be more obedient to my Savior. Humility says, I will never coast spiritually. I will never coast spiritually. So Paul here gives us the key to humility. Look at Christ and be like Him. I'm not going to teach through verses 5 through 11. That's really a theological passage that is made to be the illustration. I I want to expand on the illustration. And what I'd like to do is use some other scriptures to show you how Jesus did humble himself. I'd like to show you five ways, five examples of Jesus humbling himself. The first example of how he humbled himself, Jesus humbled himself by giving up what he deserved. He gave up what he deserved. Unlike us, we, we don't deserve anything. He deserves everything. And yet he gave up what he deserved. Think about this. Where did Jesus come from? In John 17.5, before he's arrested in what we now call the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, he prayed this. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was, before the world began. In eternity past, Jesus was in a glorious state of perfect communion with God as Father. Just to give a little tiny taste, Ezekiel 1, beginning in verse 26, says, Now above the expanse was over their heads something like in the likeness of a throne, like sapphire stone in appearance. And upon the likeness of the throne, high up was the likeness of one with the appearance of a man. Then I saw from the appearance of his loins and upward something like the gleam of glowing metal with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something from the light with the appearance of fire and there was a radiance all around him. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of all the radiance all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Jesus left that. He left it. And he went from this glory to condescend to be implanted, as it were, in the womb of a sinful little teenage girl from Galilee. He was born in utterly humble circumstances. His first bed on this earth was made of grass, straw, junk. He humbled himself by leaving heaven, by giving up what he deserved. 
He gave up what he deserved. This is a second example of Jesus humbling himself. He humbled himself by submitting to authority. He humbled himself by submitting to authority. That makes sense for us. That's harder for us to grasp for one who is the authority. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We'll be in the Gospel of Luke for a little bit here. Very familiar passage, Luke 2. We have one account of the childhood of Jesus. And so it's, it's worth revisiting as often as we need to. Luke 2, beginning in verse 41. We see this classic account. Luke 2, 41. And his parents would go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know. But supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking for him. And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I could spend hours on this passage. I just want to boil it down to two ways that he demonstrated humility. Two ways he submitted to authority. First, he submitted to family authority. He submitted to family authority. Verse 51, he went down with them, came to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them. What's the difference between Jesus and Joseph and Mary? The difference is that whenever there's a difference of opinion, Joseph and Mary are always wrong. Every time. Jesus is sinless. He was never wrong. When Mary said, why have you treated us this way? With the implicit accusation of you mistreated us. No. You could ask the question, how come you didn't know where I was for three days? You know, to turn that around there. (laughs) Jesus was sinless. Joseph and Mary were sinners. And yet he submitted to them. He submitted to them because he was a a law-abiding, a God-loving human being. A humble believer submits to authority without conditions. I'll be respectful and submissive as long as. No. That's conditional. A humble believer submits to managerial authority at work. That's a sign of being a Christian. You're you're submissive. A humble believer submits to government authority by obeying laws that don't require him to sin. A humble believer submits to spiritual pastoral authority in the church as demanded in Scripture. Jesus submitted to authority, submitted to his family authority. Think about this for a minute. Jesus learned carpentry from his earthly heavenly or his earthly father, rather, Joseph. He did things in submission to Joseph the way Joseph wanted him to do. Now, do you see the irony in this? 
Now, Colossians 1.16 says, For in Christ all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. He made galaxies from nothing. And yet he humbled himself to be a baby and to be a boy who as a human being learned how to hammer and nail from Joseph. Uh, that's mind-boggling. You try go on any job site and try and tell the guy in charge there that you know more than he does, he's going to escort you off and rightly so. Jesus didn't tell Joseph, you know I made this nail. You know I made the metal from which it's made. You know... I can tell you the exact place in the earth this was dug out. And yet he submitted. We know Jesus paid his taxes. Now he took his taxes out of the mouth of a fish. That would be nice if we could do that too. (laughs) But he obeyed the government. And he made a very clear statement. He said, I don't have to do this. The, The son of God doesn't have to pay taxes to the people he created. But he did it to just not give offense. And here in the temple, as a 12-year-old, we see the second way he demonstrated humility. First, he submitted to family authority. Second, he submitted to spiritual authority. He submitted to spiritual authority. Verse 46, And it happened that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. He's listening, he's asking them questions. What's the irony of this? The irony is that Jesus is respectful. He's polite to these teachers. He's asking them questions about the law of God which he wrote. Which came from the heart of God. You can take this a step further. 21 years later, some of these same men were the men shouting, crucify him. And yet he submitted to them. Did he know exactly who they were in his humanity? I I don't think so. Because verse 52 says he was advancing in wisdom and stature. How can the all-knowing, all-seeing, almighty God learn something in his humanity? If anybody can answer that, you're in heaven. Because we don't have an answer to that. But we do know he learned. But he was smart enough, having known the word of God such that these teachers of the law who are 40 and 50 and 60 and 80 years old are sitting here listening to a 12-year-old tell them about the word of God. And yet he asked them questions. He submitted to spiritual authority. You know, sometimes uh, this doesn't happen a lot. It's only happened a couple times at Grace Bible Church. I've been involved in other ministries where it happens a lot. But somebody will ask me, who do you think you are? Well, I'm your pastor. You signed on the dotted line to be a member here to to submit to that authority. No, who do you think you are? And I like to turn to this passage and say, Jesus knew more than these guys all put together. And yet he submitted to them because it was the right thing to do. He submitted to authority. There's a third way he humbled himself. He humbled himself by associating with the lowly. He associated with the lowly. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, just a page or so over. You know, if associating with the lowly wasn't a problem for the Christian and for the church, the book of James wouldn't tell us to stop not doing it if we could use a double negative. But in Luke Luke 5, rather, verse 12, we see this classic episode. And it happened that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he directed him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. But he himself would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. Leprosy was the most dreaded disease in Jesus' day. It was a death sentence that took decades to kill you. It was just a progression of misery over time. And not only did your, was your body literally coming apart, but the moment you were diagnosed, the moment anybody knew you had leprosy, according to the law of God and according to just common sense, you couldn't see relatives, you couldn't see friends, you had to live outside the village. There were, there were a whole, we, we call, they called them leper colonies living in caves and living in tents, never seeing people that they love. And, and, and one thing that a leper did not get to experience anymore was human touch. And did you notice that, Lord, if you were willing, you could make me clean. And before Jesus said anything, he stretched out his hand and touched them. Then he said, I am willing, be cleansed. He could have healed him with a word. He could have said, you know, social distance, I'll heal you from, uh, from six feet away. I don't think we can possibly fathom what that touch felt like to that leper. It may have been the first touch he'd experienced in 40 years. It may have been the, the first time somebody touched him in love ever. And, and we don't know if he had ever been married or not. It, it may, he may never have experienced this at this level. More and more people were hearing of Jesus. They were flocking to him to be healed. But Jesus was never a crowd pleaser. So we saw he would slip away to the desolate regions and pray. It's interesting how he would take time with one leper, but sometimes he would leave whole crowds. And yet at the end of his ministry, he thanked his father that he had accomplished everything God sent him to do. He humbled himself by associating with the lowly at a level we just can only really dream of. Here's a fourth way Jesus humbled himself. I'll start the list again. He humbled himself by giving up what he deserved. He humbled himself by submitting to authority. He humbled himself by associating with the lowly. Fourth, Jesus humbled himself by not responding to insults. By not responding to insults. You don't have to turn there. It's a long passage. I'm just going to tell you the story. But in Luke 7... Beginning in verse 36 or so, a Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus to eat in his home. Now, the Pharisees were a religious sect that originally actually did some good things. They had been devoted to a very high view of Scripture, devoted to keeping the law of God. But over time, they degraded, they degenerated into legalists who held that their own rules and regulations were higher than Scripture. And and, and here was their rationale. Their rationale was, if we want to keep ourselves and others from disobeying the Word of God, we've got to put hedges, fences all around the Word of God to make it so hard to disobey that that, that now, though, those hedges, those rules became equal to Scripture. And that's what always happens when true religion turns to false religion, if I can use the old-fashioned term. But the Pharisees essentially controlled Jerusalem. They controlled the religious life of the Jews. And this Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to eat at his home. 
This was not an invitation to be nice. This was not an invitation to be polite. This was an invitation calculated to humiliate Jesus. At these dinners, women were generally not invited. It was a formal occasion, and it was a time to discuss weighty religious matters. And there's no doubt that this Pharisee thought that he would outmaneuver and outlogic and outspeak Jesus. Now, a guest coming to one of these dinners could expect three things to happen when he arrived in the home. This, was a, this wasn't just a, a, an informal, you know, hey, you want to grab some pizza tonight together. This was a dinner. You wore your best clothes. You got cleaned up for it. But on the way there, you get dirty because everybody walks in the dirt roads. So you could expect three things to happen. First of all, the host ought to greet you at the door. You ever ring the doorbell in somebody's house and, and they send their three-year-old to go answer? That kind of says, well, I guess I'm not that important. No, the host is to answer and the host greets you. The second thing you could expect is by their custom, the, the host would give you a kiss of greeting on the cheek that said, I respect you. I, I have regard for you. I have, I, you are significant to me. I will show you that affection. And the third thing you could expect to happen is that he would arrange to have the guest's head anointed with a little perfumed oil and to even have his feet washed that was to get freshened up after a, a long walk remember in that, in that day and age that culture it wasn't a big deal to walk five miles to go do something and so they would have been dusty they would have been tired so you get the greeting you get the, the, the kiss of respect and you get the, the head anointed you get the feet washed those, those are the things that happens now, if you, if you want to picture this more in, in this era, the dinner would not be inside in some sort of dining room. It would be outdoors in a courtyard. And there was a couple of reasons for this. First of all, you could seat more people. The houses weren't huge, but the court, courtyards were. And because these dinners often had great conversations, the courtyard allowed people in the village to kind of come and be spectators. I mean, they you know, make their popcorn and stand outside the wall and listen and, and watch. And in some cases, the courtyards were open to the public and literally people would stand around the table and watch the dinner happen. It was a spectator event. Well, standing behind Jesus watching the dinner was a woman that Luke says was a woman of the city who was a sinner. And she was weeping. She was weeping over her own sin. She knew who Jesus was and she believed. She fell down at Jesus' feet. She washed his feet with her own tears. She kissed his feet. And she anointed his feet with expensive oil, with with everything she had. Well, the text tells us that Simon the Pharisee thought to himself, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him. Well, Jesus knew Simon's thoughts, and he answered them with a parable that explains that when someone is forgiven much, they love much. And then Jesus looked at the woman. So he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon the Pharisee. He's looking at the woman, and he says... Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And he's making eye contact with her while talking to Simon. What, what is that, by the way? He's dissing this guy, not making eye contact with him while he's talking to him. He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. 
But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Why did she, why did she do this? Jesus was the one she believed in. He was her savior, or she wanted him to be her savior. And she knew the custom, and she saw how he was mistreated, and she went and rectified it. She made it right. And he said, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. What's the implication? Yours have not. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Now the point of that passage is the nature of salvation. It comes to those only who believe they must be forgiven. If you don't believe you need to be forgiven of sin, God won't forgive you. But I want to draw your attention to how humble Jesus was in this circumstance. These were public dinners. And can you imagine having your family dinner with an audience of maybe dozens or hundreds of people watching? Ooh, look what he said to his wife. How rude that was. And that kid's misbehaved. Ooh, there's peas roll going down. Everybody's watching everything. <laughs> Everyone saw Jesus enter into the dining area. Everyone saw Simon snub Jesus by washing the feet of all the other guests, by anointing the head of all the other guests, by giving a kiss on the cheek, perhaps both, to all the other guests, and simply pointing, you can sit over there. Everyone saw that. This was a huge insult. And how did Jesus respond? He didn't say anything. He went to the seat that was assigned to him. He engaged in conversation. He taught those who were there. He even shared the gospel with the Pharisee. He only said something when the Pharisee was self-righteously putting down the woman. Then Jesus began to give a defense, not of himself. He did not respond to the insult. Why? Because he's humble. He's humble. There's one more way Jesus humbled himself that we'll talk about this morning. He humbled himself by not defending himself even though he's innocent. He humbled himself by not defending himself, even though he's innocent. You don't have to turn there. I just want to briefly mention this one. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus has been arrested. He's charged with blasphemy. He's charged with saying that he's the son of God, making himself equal with God. He's brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Isn't there just a little part of you that wishes Jesus would have said, Yes, I am, and and melt everything all around him? (laughs) Or at least he could have given a lengthy defense. Let me tell you from Genesis through Malachi why I'm the son of God. Can you imagine Jesus as a defense attorney? He, He would be undefeated. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? All he says to Pilate, He didn't even say yes. He said, you said it, not me. You've said so. And then the chief priest made false accusations against Jesus and Pilate was flabbergasted. He said, aren't you going to answer? Do you see how many charges are being brought against you? And Mark 15, 5 says, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. He did not defend himself. Now, in Jesus' particular case... There was a specific reason for this. 
Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why did Jesus not open his mouth? Because he never lies, he always tells the truth, and if he told the truth, he would have to say, I am innocent, I do not deserve the cross, here's 50 million reasons why, and they would let him off, and we're doomed. So he was led like a lamb that deserves to be slaughtered. But he didn't deserve it. Turn back to Philippians 2 and we'll finish off our time there. I want to draw your attention to one particular word. I've mentioned it already and we mentioned it a lot at Grace. But it's always worth coming back to. Philippians 2 verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a doulos. The New Testament refers to believers in Christ as douloi, plural of doulos, 125 times. The only word used more frequently to refer to Christians is the word we translate disciple, mathetes. English translations are generally hesitant. If you don't have a legacy standard Bible, yours almost certainly says by taking the form of a servant or a bond servant. That's softening the weight of that word. That's, that's hesitancy to translate the word the way it ought to be. But in Jesus' day, you ask anybody on the street, hey, excuse me, put the microphone in their face if they had microphones. What's a doulos? Duh, it's a slave. Well, how many rights does a doulos have? Duh, None. Everybody knew what a doulos was. Jesus came to earth taking the form of a doulos, a slave. He came in obedience to his father in utter and complete subjection to his father's will. You see, the gospel of Christ demands humility. It demands it because that's the reality of our position and it's a beautiful position. It's a beautiful position. A proud Christian is really a a contradiction in terms. A proud Christian who's constantly thinking about himself and his feelings and how situations affect him absolutely can't walk in joy. You can't walk in pride and in joy at the same time. It's not possible. You can have one or the other. Humility and joy go together. Think about this. In the year 59, Paul wrote to the Corinthian church around that year and he said, I am the least of all the apostles. That's pretty humble. In the year 63, he wrote to the Ephesian church and said, I'm the least of all the Christians. In the year 64, he wrote to his friend Timothy and said, I am the chief of all the sinners. It seems that Paul's humility grew with every passing year. He became less and Christ became more. Now, just to be clear, humility does not mean being weak. It does not mean failing to stand up for what's right. It doesn't mean you don't point out sin in a brother. I want to speak to one issue. And I really have to. Humility cannot be attained by human effort. This is actually a sermon that an unbeliever could listen to and go, yeah, I think I can do that. That makes sense. You know, from a managerial standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, humility gets people to respect me. And I I get that. I, I, I think humility is a good thing for me. It can't be attained by human effort. It's not a Christian ethic that you can just decide to apply to your life. 
Humility begins, there's only one starting point, and that is with the acknowledgement that every good work you think you've ever done that will somehow please God is actually utterly worthless to Him. And not just worthless, it's offensive. Isaiah 1, 10 through 15 says that God hates the so-called good deeds done by the unrepentant. This is what true repentance looks like as told by Jesus himself. In Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus gives his judgment, and he is the judge. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And listen, if you're you're not willing to come to faith in Christ, you might be able to pull off the appearance of humility. You might have books written about you. You might become famous. You might lead a company or multiple companies and, and all your former employees say he was always so humble. And yet, if you don't humble yourself before Almighty God to agree that your good works are worthless before God, because you can't pay for your sins and only Christ can pay for your sins, then you're actually guilty of the very worst kind of pride. You're proud of your false humility because you refuse to humble yourself before the God who actually created you. So the more, you ready for this? The more humble you appear, the worse in trouble you are with God. Because not only are you a sinner, but you're a liar. Because you act humble with everyone except to the one who deserves your humility. So true, true humility is only possible for the believer in Christ who's acknowledged his rightful position. I love the great Dutch Reformed pastor of the 19th century, Andrew Murray. He wrote this. He said, humility is not something we bring to God. It's simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all. He says, humility is acknowledging the truth of your position as a creature and yielding God his place as creator. You cannot earn points with God. You cannot earn favor with God by pretending to be humble. All that does is incur his wrath all the more. Oh, you get me at every turn. Exactly. The gospel is meant to corner you. It's meant to trap you. It's meant to defeat you. It's meant to make you helpless. It's meant to make you give up. Because you have nothing God wants. And every time you give him something you think he wants, you offend him all the more. Instead, you humble yourself by coming to genuine repentant faith in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And then you're freed and empowered to live a life pleasing to Christ. Because now you've been crucified with Christ and you no longer live. Christ lives in you. Every person will be humbled before Christ, we read it in our passage here, didn't we? In verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There are only two reasons that every knee will bow. The first reason will be because he makes you. Because he will tell you as the judge of all 
people at the great white throne judgment. You spent a life in false humility. You spent a life in pride. You spent a life. I will, I will list all the times you had the gospel presented to you. On, on November 6, 2022, at Grace Bible Church on White Lane in Bakersfield, California, you heard the gospel and you walked away going, that's not for me. You did it on this date, this date, this date, this date, this date, this date. And on this date, I said enough. And I decreed that this day would come. You will bow before me now. And he will make you. And then he will judge you. That's the first reason. The other reason is because it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And we all as believers dream of the day that we bow before Jesus. But make no mistake. This is the scariest word in the whole Bible. Every knee will bow. What is humility? It's having a proper estimation of yourself. What does it look like? Well, now I can finish off our time by reading the text that I just taught. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is such a vital topic, I believe, with all of my heart. This is the highest ideal in discipleship. This is the highest goal that we have in working with each other. And and you might even ask the question, I don't know how to disciple another man. It's really not that difficult. You sit, you open your Bible, and you say, tell me three sins you committed this week, and what's the prideful attitude behind it, and how are we going to humble ourselves? That's discipleship. This is such a vital topic. It literally touches every area of your life. How much better a husband would you be if you were humble all the time? How much better a father would you be? How much better a worker would you be? How much better just a Christian would you be? It affects everything. In fact, it's so important that the next four times I speak to you here at First Watch, I'm going to talk about humility. We're going to do seven hallmarks of a humble Christian man. Humble Christian man. We'll examine what scriptures say about these. We'll do it four times. And so by the time we're done, we'll have 28 hallmarks of a humble Christian man. Now, we're going to have other speakers throughout the, the coming months, but the next four times I speak to you, this is what I'm coming back to every time. This is the greatest goal of discipleship. And so my prayer for you, certainly my prayer for myself, is that we walk together in humility and in the coming months we see what the Lord does first in our lives and then the impact in the lives around us. I guarantee you if we had time to do this, when you begin truly saying your sins aloud, chewing that aluminum foil, putting the sand in your mouth, the grit, taking the horrible medicine and being so disgusted by your sin that you start to see, oh, I'm viewing my sin more like God does. We could have you come up here and say, my wife know this, my kids know this, my co-workers know this, my fellow brothers in Christ know this, and it would make a huge impact. That's my prayer. That's what I hope happens. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now. I guess the ultimate acknowledgement of humility is the fact that you chose us before the foundation of the world for salvation. When we, we couldn't have done anything to merit your favor. We weren't even alive yet. 
And yet Ephesians 1 is so clear, before the foundation of the world, we were chosen in Christ. That alone should humble us every day of our lives. Lord, I pray for these men here. I pray for myself. Oh, Lord, let us, as we walk through this life, be more and more characterized by the hallmark of putting others first, of doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Lord, I pray that the times we're tempted to be angry for selfish reasons, the times we're tempted to be frustrated for selfish reasons, the times we're tempted to be disappointed, that we would stop short and remember we are slaves of Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I pray that's the hallmark of these men. I pray, Lord, that would be the hallmark of our church. And that as a result, you would save many who see what the gospel does to the human heart. We thank you and praise you for this time, Lord. We pray you would prepare our hearts for the Lord's Day tomorrow to worship you in earnest. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.